As I got into this this week, and by the way, we're in Isaiah 25, if you want to make your way there. As I got into this this week, it became uh, evident to me that today's time was going to be intensely personal for me. So will you allow me, you know, there are weeks where um, I kind of feel like there's part of this where I need to just put my hand in my pocket and just say, let's just talk. Okay, so there will be some of that that goes on today. I'll try not to be so pressured by the clock. I kind of cut down on the amount of material we we're going to do and the amount of verses we're going to cover. So um, I'm kind of excited about it. But allow me, if you will, to be a little personal today, okay? Is that all right? All right. Let's begin with this thought, if you will, with me, of a mountaintop experience. You ever had one of those? You know what that is? Anybody, anybody tell us what a mountaintop experience is. Yeah, Gloria. Boy, I love that description. Something that only God could achieve in my life, a mountaintop experience. Now, a lot of people will call it a mountaintop experience, even secular people not knowing that they're really quoting something that has to do with a God thing. Uh, uh, in particular, I think the reference first referred to uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, this was, remember, Peter said, I just don't want to leave. And that always kind of conveys, kind of carries with it that kind of experience too. Maybe you have gone to a family reunion or something like that. Or maybe you've been in a particular church service that was just better than ever, you know. I don't know, one of those kinds of things. Um, well, uh, my question is, have you ever had one of those? And have you had one recently? What we're going to deal with today is I believe that Isaiah 25 tells us that there is a mountaintop experience coming in your future. And it's going to be the best one yet. And uh, I want to be kind of hopeful about that with you. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. We were in Isaiah 11 last week, and this, that passage concluded with the statement that nothing harmful or destructive is to have any place in God's holy mountain. I want us to think a little bit about God's holy mountain and the fact that nothing destructive will be allowed there. Remember we talked about the lion laying down with the lamb and all that stuff last week. Um, this is, today's passage comes from about a, about a four or five chapter section of Isaiah that sometimes is known as Isaiah's apocalypse or the Isaiah apocalypse because the scenes pictured there uh, are similar to apocalyptic language and writing and imagery that's found in the book of Revelation. So, I'm going to ask somebody, if you will, because we're going to be kind of camping out a little bit, uh, we'll certainly be in Isaiah 25, but somebody who's going to be here the whole time, would you um, be our revelation expert? You know, some of you have to leave and go usher and do other things, but uh, if you're going to be here the whole time, because we're going to be in and out of the book of Revelation, it'd be nice to just point to you and say, get that one for us. Who would, who would be that revelation person for us? I'm looking. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. Well, that, that would be great. There, there's just three or four verses in Revelation. Uh, and Joanna, there's some, I think they're all on the, on the page. Uh, there may be a couple that I'll, I'll, but I'll give you a warning ahead. Uh, by the way, uh, Revelation 2014, add 
to the list, and it's kind of in the middle of this session. And here's the good news, Joanna. If you read from Revelation and not from Isaiah, you end up not having any big words to have to get through. You know, big names. You know, Jehoshaphat and um, Mahalal Hashbaz is not in there. So, okay. Uh, all right, now, so, um, so, he, so we've got this apocalyptic language. Now, using the kind of symbolism that's found there, the prophet Isaiah pictures the whole earth coming under the judgment of God. In the 24th chapter of Isaiah, toward the beginning of this apocalyptic section, um, he really uses that kind of language, uh, illustrated quite well by verse 20. So look, at since we're going to be in 25, if your Bible's like mine, I just have to flip back one page to 2420. Here's what it says. This is, an, this is interesting imagery. Okay, The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. Interesting. Little image. Kind of get that imagery? This is, uh, this is Otis walking into Andy Griffith's, you know, um, jailhouse, all right? And it totters like a shack. We talked about this a little bit last week, how the creation is groaning. It's wearing out. Totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So that's not very hopeful. It's the earth is kind of wearing out. It's kind of the world. He's not talking about specifically about terra firma. He's just talking about, you know, things are someday going to go away. Uh, it's kind of interesting imagery there. The Lord has plans to devastate the earth utterly. But with that as a backdrop, when you start chapter 25, the tone shifts significantly from words of judgment to words of praise to God. Look at verse 1, chapter 25. O Lord, you're my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So uh, the language even changes. Kind of, the, kind of the spirit of it all changes at the beginning of verse 25. We're going to pick it up in verse 6 in just a minute. Uh, uh, he does talk about bringing strength to his people, and he also talks in verse 1 and 2 um, about... Um, actually, verse 2 down through 5, about bringing judgment on the enemies of the people of God. So, uh, the, the way that kind of ends, verse 5 is especially kind of poignant with that. Like heat in a drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silent. Can you catch that? Brad, we talked a minute ago about how desperately crazy our world is and how there are people just around us today, unlike sometimes, we kind of feel like, unlike any time in our, our history, where we just have ruthless people around. Here's the idea. The Bible says, God says, through the, through the pen of Isaiah, he says, one of these days, those people are going to be silenced, he says. It's kind of a, kind of a, hope, a very hopeful passage for us right here. Now, Isaiah previously had described the mountain of the Lord, as a place where noteworthy events in God's sovereign plan are to unfold. So what I want us to do is just for a second before we get back to 25, go to chapter 2, Isaiah 2. Here's a description of the mountain. I'm going to start with verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. So it's going to be higher than anything else. And the nations will stream into it. That's beautiful. 
many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. You, you may have heard that before. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Okay, so you may have heard that passage. Uh, I remember a song in the 60s that was sung kind of about that. Uh, is that, okay. Uh, they used that passage. Didn't word of that, Sally. Okay, so you kind of got this picture that there's the mountain of God. What's going to start happening in verse 6 in chapter 25 is he's going to talk about what is going to happen there at kind of the end of it all. Would somebody read verse 6, 7, and 8 from Isaiah Okay, we've got to look at a couple of things to kind of catch what's being talked about here. Um, would somebody go to Leviticus 3, and I want us to read verse 14, 15, and 16 from Leviticus 3. Who would get that one? Third book of the Bible. Leviticus 3, it says 12, but I just want us to read 14, 15, So would you get that? Thank you. Okay, and then um, Luke 5, 39, one verse that we're going to need. I'm going to get that one. Luke 5, 39. John, you get that one? Great. Okay. Now, um, um, I want to re reference, I won't have Joanna go to this one, but what I want to reference, you might want to put in your outline, uh, Revelation 19 talks about, uh, there's this imagery here that is parallel to Isaiah 25 that talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. You ever heard of that? The marriage supper of the Lamb. What you need to think about is that it's a day coming in the future that will be the greatest banquet of all time. Greatest banquet of, of history, okay? Think about that. Um, uh, some, if you think about the greatest church dinner you've ever been at, uh, maybe this is better than that. If you think about if, if your taste goes toward uh, something uh, more like a... Uh, uh, a wedding feast at a great ballroom, then it would be like that on steroids, okay? That's kind of the picture here. And, and Isaiah is going to give us a picture of it as well, as well. He's going to talk about some things that will be at the table, including, you ready? Fat meat. Fat meat, okay? Now I want you to hear about fat meat. We're going to go to Leviticus 3, and uh, Sally, you're going to read 14, 15, and 16. From what he offers, he is to make this offering to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. <laughs> the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. Okay, now... It sounds like to me fat is a good thing. Uh, do, so, am I reading that right? 
that really the fat portions are the best. Now, is it, are we going to say here that, oh, well, obviously they didn't know about cholesterol and all those kinds of things. <laughs> all right? I'm sure I don't read the word cholesterol in the Bible. But, but the idea was, you know, uh, it, there is no th imagery here at, at this great banquet feast that somebody will say, bring me a piece of lean chicken. Do I? Boneless, skinless, you know, breast meat or whatever. No, it's, it is, bring me a big fat piece of steak. Now, I had a friend in eastern Kentucky who was a lot better off than I, and uh, he would occasionally invite me to his home to eat, and he would grill steaks that he ordered from Omaha. Now, I'd never heard of that in those days. I was a, I was a young preacher and, uh, and uh, kind of poor, and I'd go to Brad's house. He was a he was a doctor. He was a plastic surgeon, and he had cars that I couldn't afford, and you know, ate meat that I couldn't afford. And he'd order these steaks out of Omaha, and I would watch Brad, uh, who was very health conscious. He would trim almost like an inch of the meat around. He didn't want to even he didn't want to hit the portion of steak that he ate to even approximate fat. And I kind of you know. I kind of wanted to say, uh, Brad, why don't you slide that over to my plate, pal? Because if, if you're like me, the part that's up next to the fat tastes better than anything else. That's at the banquet table that Isaiah's describing. Okay, he also describes wine, the kind of drink that they will have there. But it's kind of an interesting um, thought on that. And we get this, a similar thought in Luke 5.39. John, you got that? The old is better. By the way, if you're feeling old like I am this morning, you can kind of take that and, and, and love on it a little bit. Okay, the old is better. Now, he's talking specifically about wine here. He says the old is better. So if there are two things that you need to kind of keep in mind here is that according to the Bible, fat is better. Fat's the best. And old is better in terms of meat and wine. And there will be plenty of both of those things at this incredible banquet table. Okay? Um, I, I left the reference of John 2.10 in there. That's the reference of Jesus' first miracle at the, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And uh, if you remember, uh, even though that was, uh, I guess you could call it new wine, it tasted like old wine because they said, uh, boy, you've saved the very best to last, which they, they don't typically do. Okay, so you got this idea that there's this, this sumptuous banquet going to be served. But who's going to be there? Let's, let's look again at verse 6, because I think it's really important that we catch this. The word is interesting. All, what's the word that follows? Now, my, my Bible says it's plural, peoples. Uh, it would be interesting if we only said all people, because that kind of would think, okay, there are lots of people there. But when it says all peoples, it's talking, I think, specifically about people groups. We could say all kinds of people, all groups of people. There is nobody that you can imagine that won't be there. No kind of person that you can imagine that won't be there. In fact, the surprise may be the kind of groups that you see there and that you meet there around this great banquet table. But the greater surprise may be 
that you're there. I don't want to be stinky about that, but let's think about that for just a minute. All peoples will be there. There will be the, the idea here is that Isaiah is trying to convey, and he's very interested in this. In fact, he talks about people from island groups, which they've never met. Uh, all that kind of thing in, in other places in Scripture. What I want you to think about is at this banquet table, which will be the best ever and everybody will want to be there, there will be no one on the outside looking in. There will be no group on the outside looking in saying, well, I wish I'd gotten an invitation. Everybody gets an invitation. We'll deal with that in a little bit. Okay, now, look at verse 7. God is going to do this wonderful final act um, he, seven describes uh, something that is a really a wonder. He'll swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Now, if you're, if you're reading from the NIV, what are the words that are used there? I think it uses the word shroud and sheet. Does it? Shroud. And then is there a second reference like a sheet, Brad? Okay. All right. I, I did a little study on this. It's kind of interesting. He's going to remove whatever that is. All right. Whatever that is, he's going to remove. The shroud, the word that's, that's translated shroud, that's translated in my Bible, um, uh, covering, is, is what technically is known in the Bible, or, or in Bible study, it's not, not a word that's in the Bible, but in, in Bible study, uh, that word that is translated shroud in your NIV Bibles is what we call a hypox. That means... It only occurs one time in all of Scripture. So it's kind of hard to kind of determine what it means. It's just this word shroud. That's the only time that word is used in all the Old Testament. Now, can you see how that becomes a kind of a challenge uh, for um, uh, determining what it means? Because you don't have anything else to compare it to. The only thing that we've got to compare it to in verse 7 is what comes later. Um, and, and I think in your NIV, it uses the word sheet, a shroud and a sheet. God's going to remove those things. Uh, in my Bible, it's not quite as picturesque language here. But um, it, my, my Bible uses the word veil, which is a similar word to what's used in Corinthians, I put that reference there. I don't like that reference here because it's talking about a veil over your face, and that's not what this is talking about. This literally, uh, when it says God is going to remove the sheet what, or the shroud, he's talking about the covering over a corpse. Make more sense? Imagine, you know, remember watching uh, Quincy way back in the day? Remember the first of all the... Uh, the uh, 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 autopsy guys, you know, I mean, I have, how long, I'm dating myself big time. But I remember he was always looking at somebody who was covered in a sheet. What did it indicate if they were covered in a sheet? Dead. God is going to remove the sheet. Now, what does that mean? He's not just going to expose something. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's going to... Um, bring the dead back to life. It's talking about he's going to do away literally with death. It's death here is referenced as the sheet that he's going to just remove. I love that thought. We'll, we'll keep talking about that all through this passage. Okay? Now, I left in, for your blank there. When he does that, when he does away with death, 
It will be for everyone, all peoples, plural, but only for those who are living on the mountain. Think about that for a little bit. I don't want to unpack that yet. It'll be for those who are, who are residents of this mountain. Okay, It's pretty obvious what that means, but we'll go on and try to deal with it later. You've got to be living in the mountain, on that mountain, if you want to be part of this banquet, and if you want to have this sheet taken away. Okay, All right, let's go to verse 8. I want to read it from my Bible. He will swallow up death for all time. I said this at the breakfast, I read this at the breakfast table this morning, and Rhonda couldn't believe that this came from Isaiah. This is a revelation portion, but it comes right here from Isaiah. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Can, can you catch that imagery? In, in a funeral service years and years ago, I, I said, I just kind of, it's coming back to me right now. The Lord will surgically remove, at, at the time this happens, he will surgically remove your tear ducts. You won't need them anymore. He'll just take them away. God himself, his own hand, it says. All right, we'll do that. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. That's important too. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So what you need to know is that at this time, Anything that causes weeping in this world will have no place in the one to come. Anything that causes weeping in this world will have no place in the one to come. Uh, Paul quotes from this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. You might have thought, you know, that was just Pauline. Well, it's not. It's Paul has um, a reason to quote this. Now, we're going to look at a couple of Revelation passages in a minute. Will somebody go to Hebrews 2.14? That's almost at the end of your Bible. Hebrews 2.14. We'll get that one. John, thank you. Okay? And then, uh, uh, Joanna, I'm going to have you read 7.17 and 21.4. He's talking about here, okay? I put the reference to Genesis 2.17. Uh, all this language here is linked to the punishment, the main punishment for the sin of mankind that begins in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, which is death. What the thought is, is prior to Genesis 2 and 3, man would have lived forever. And he's returning or reworking, recreating that curse. Now, John, did you find Hebrews 2.14? He's going to destroy the devil, who's really the guy who is, is the death merchant anyway. So that's going to take care of it. Joanna, let's look at a couple other places. In fact, there's three of them I want us to look at. 717 in Revelation. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hear how John revisits this theme from, from Isaiah 25. Now, Joanna, would you also go to Revelation 20, verse 14? Then death and Hades 
Okay. Do you catch what happens there? Death is put away. There's a place for death, and it's not on this mountain, God says. It's there. In the place where the devil is. No more will you and I have to deal with it. Pretty important to me these days. Okay. All right. Uh, one more. Joanna 21, 4. The old order of things has passed away. Okay, now, I began to think of it this way. In that day, um, I, I was actually reading, I was trying to, I'm trying to remember who I was, some sports figure I was reading, who um, was quoted as saying um, that they had just won the championship, okay? There is nobody who wins a championship on this earth who then says, you know what, we're so good, let's just play another quarter. <laughs> Nobody says that. Why? Well, I will stumble and lose, right? Yeah, you know? But when the championship is over, when the trophy is hoisted, nobody says, you know what, uh, we're feeling really cocky. Let's do this, let's play this game again. We'll, be we'll beat you again. <laughs> nobody does that. Okay? But, but the issue is, that's in this world. Why would nobody do that? Because fear of, of having victory become defeat. Not, it's not going to be like that on this mountain. This is ultimate, final victory. Death has been thrown away. That's for the devil and his people. All right. Now, I, I left two blanks here because I want you to notice here in 25.8, there is the promise of this cessation of weeping in two particular ways. And, and there are a couple of things that cause us to cry that will no longer be necessary. Okay, The first is pretty obvious. Sources of tears is kind of what we're dealing with there. The first is death. I have shed lots of tears over the last six weeks. I've, I have uh, been uh, working through, I was in my journal yesterday, finally got to kind of sit down and, and think a little bit after this long period of time has, is now kind of uh, at least partially behind us. And I began to think about um, uh, all of the things that have just rocked us in the last six weeks or so. And all the tears have been shed. And there's a lot more to come. Wouldn't it be wonderful when weeping over someone gone is over? It's just over. No longer need, tears are no longer needed. But notice there's another issue in 25.8. That the need for tears is, will cease. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord will, God will wipe tears away from all faces. But notice what's next. And he'll remove reproach of his people from all the earth. Okay? Here's the idea here. All right? He says, I'm going to remove death from the equation. I can't imagine how different your life and mine would be if death was taken out of the equation. And disgrace 
If death and disgrace were taken out of the equation, wouldn't you argue with me that there wouldn't be much need for tears anymore? The only tears I can imagine from that point would be tears of joy. But if I'm not going to be disgraced ever again, if I'm not going to ever have to deal again with the death of a loved one or the fear of that, can you imagine what my new existence? He says here, he's making all things brand new. And the way I can kind of count on it is mentioned here in the very, very last phrase of verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. What does that mean? It's true. You can just count on it. God said it. It literally carries a, a, a ring of finality with it. I have spoken. God has spoken. He will do it. What he says, he's going to do. Now, let's, let's go on because there's a song that's going to ensue here of gratitude in verse 9 and 10. Somebody read verse 9 and 10 out loud to us. I'd forgotten this had the word manure in it. <laughs> but the things that are uh, ended up in the manure pile belong there. Okay, that's basically what it's saying. Now, here's the deal. There's going to be a song that will be sung in this mountain, and it will be the song of all on the mountain. I counted in the, in the verse that I was, in the translation I was reading, maybe it's about the same with you. There are five references in verse 9 to either us or we or our. Um. In my Bible, the word we two times, the word us two times, the word our at least once, okay? And this song that was in the first verse of 25, O Lord, you're my God, I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. It's kind of this idea, uh, or, or this song, will be sung by everybody that's on the mountain. There's kind of a reference that sounds like... Um, uh, Psalm 118 there. I put that reference there because it talks about um, um, uh, giving thanks to the Lord for he is good. He has done marvelous things. That kind of idea. So the song will be sung. Now it's on the lips of whom? All mountain dwellers. Okay, everybody who's there. All the peoples who are there. By the way, I think, I think that Isaiah may be doing a little play on his own name here somewhat because he talks about here uh, in verse 9, he talks about, um, you catch it, uh, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah's name, Isaiah's name translated from the original language is the Lord is salvation. Isn't that interesting? It makes you wonder if with all the kind of ups and downs of Isaiah's life, if he's looking ahead and saying, you know what, I'll be singing that song too. Because the Lord is my salvation as well. Now, um, there's another thing that's going to happen here. And I want us to go back and pick up a couple of verses. Because it's going to use the same word in 525... And in um, 
9.21. So let's go to those two. Let's just turn, I can just turn back four or five pages in my Bible. Okay. Verse 10 says, For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain in Moab. Okay, going on with that. All right. Here's 5.25. God's hand is at work. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against his people, and he's stretched out his hand. Catch that? Against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lie like refuge in the middle of the streets, for all his anger is not spent. But his hand is still stretched out. God's at work with his hand, literally bringing judgment. Okay, look at another place. Um, 921. <clears throat> Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger doesn't turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. So we got this idea of God's hand is working, and it's been working since before the dawn of time. His hand has been at work. It's stretched out here in this, in this case. I want you to go with me over in the, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, and I want us to read verse 26, because there is a final thing his hand is going to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. His hands have been busy. Literally, it gives us the idea of his hand. 15, 26, Paul is going to say, The last enemy that will be abolished is who? Death. The last thing his hand is going to accomplish is doing away with death. So here's the Im imagery here in verse 10. Okay? The hand of the Lord, which has always been active, now rests on the mountain. Remember the Lord created the earth and the universe in six days and the seventh day rested? There's the idea here. Once he destroys death, he can rest. His last, his last thing that he has to do. So our response, I think, and here's what I want to do is, is I kind of apply this at the, in the last five minutes or so that we're here. What is our response to be? It's, I, I left a reference for you in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He basically says there, you're not to grieve as others who don't have any hope. Because there is a mountain. There is a banquet. And those who are his will be there. And you will be there if you were his. He just says, you know, don't grieve like other people grieve. Who have no hope. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now, I want to say a couple of things about our world. Kind of as a, as a wrap-up to this piece of, uh, of, of this particular time. Okay? Death that has been in my face for the last couple of years, and certainly over the last three or four weeks. Death is proof that our world is not well. Death is sin's curse. Read about it. First three books of the first three chapters of the Bible. Death is sin's curse. Death entered because of sin. So the idea is, death is proof that all in our world is not well. Uh, if you were in church last week in the sanctuary, you heard Bill Gaither talk about the writing of the song 
um, because he lives. I want to recap a little bit of some, some of what he said. I, I, I had it printed in, in another place. He said, we wrote Because He Lives after a period of time when we had a, kind of a dry spell and hadn't written any songs for a while. Also, at the end of the 1960s, our country was going through some great turmoil. With the height of the drug culture and the whole God is dead theory was running wild in our country. Also, it was the peak of the Vietnam War. During that time, our little son was born. I can remember at the time we thought, brother, this is a really poor time to bring a child into the world. I think that today. At times, we were even quite discouraged by the whole thing. And then Benji did come. We had two little girls whom we loved very much, but this was our first son, and so that lyric came to us, how sweet to hold our newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But better still, the calm assurance that this child can face uncertain days because Christ lives. So the idea here is that death is proof that the world is not well. Secondly, you and I as Christians, even though Jesus has conquered all of these things, live, we live in a broken world. That's kind of the problem, isn't it? We have to deal with death. We have to watch as loved ones um, kind of die that protracted death sometimes as we had to deal with the last two years with Ron's mom. Just kind of watching them day by day by week by week slip away. We, it's because we live in a broken world. But the resurrection, I'm going to submit to you, is proof or evidence that Jesus will have the last word. I want us to look at two places, Romans 1, 4 and John 14, 19. It's kind of a closer to this. And then I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Romans 1, verse 4, Paul says this. He was declared by the, the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is with the disciples for one of the last times in John 14, and he says in verse 19, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. We uh, had a little mountaintop experience about three weeks ago. Um, we had... Um, Rhonda's mom had passed away and, um, on a Sunday evening late. We went through the difficult time of not just grieving that finality, but um, then putting all the plans in place for a memorial service that they had determined would take place the next Sunday, a week after the day she died. I'm trying to help kind of organize some of that by long distance. We did a lot of uh, conference calls and all this kind of, kind of work out all the details. There were people who came then that weekend from as far away as New York and Tennessee and Alabama and of course here and all over Missouri. Well, we, we, we gathered uh, on Saturday evening for a little kind of, I think we went and got pizza or something. We uh, the house was full, and uh, my sister-in-law, 
told my son to go get his guitar out of the car, and he did. They had just gotten there. By the way, there were some there from Michigan. Um, and we began to sing songs, kind of practice songs that we were going to do in the service, which it was kind of a concert. Uh, and uh, all, the whole family sang two or three songs, and my little family sang, and anyway, some of the cousins sang. It, it was wonderful in that regard, and that's what Rhonda's mom had wanted. But Jake takes out his guitar, and he and Heather start kind of leading us through some songs. We're singing through some things. And um, they sing. He, he sets up a song. Uh, by the way, for those of you, uh, uh, I've, I've talked to some about this. For those of you who have, Janet, who have Church of God background, they sang, I'm a child of God. And everybody sang big on this song, especially in the chorus, because it's really easy to remember. And none of these Nazarene people knew where that song came from. You and I know. But, um, and there were some Methodists and Baptists in the room too. But, but uh, it was kind of wonderful to hear him sing an old Barney Warren, Warren song in the middle of a grieving. But Jake sets up a song. He talks about some awful things that have been going on in their church. The death of a 40-year-old young mom of three and suddenly dropped dead. Um, a little boy, five years old, who died, who was a friend of my kids. And so he said, we've kind of chosen a song that's kind of an anthem in our church. And he began to sing a song called, um, uh, Through It All, It Is Well. And you sing, you tag on the end of that, the chorus to the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, I remember sitting there for that evening, and lots of tears, and lots of voices, and lots of heart. And I'm looking around at, can I be honest with you? The people that matter most to me in the world, besides you, my little kids, and Rhonda and, you know, my big kids and 40 other people around. People there from Florida and all kinds of places. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be good if we could just stay? Wouldn't it be good if we could just stay? Would it be even better if mom was here? If Rhonda's mom was here? Because this is what she wanted us to do. Can I make you a promise? On the mountaintop? And by the way, that was one of those mountaintop experiences. I've had a few in my life. And that was one of those mountaintop experiences where you want to say, I don't want to leave here. I want to just capture this moment in time. And that's why we take pictures and do all kinds of other things. Take little videos. Nice that we can do that. Can I make you a promise? after about 10,000 years of one of those moments on the real mountaintop, it'll just continue. Isn't that wonderful? And guess what? You get to drink old wine <laughs> and eat fat meat. I love it. Okay, we'll continue this study next week. Thanks for letting me just kind of share it.